Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target, are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall Credit Card Bill. I remember my first day at school. It was a small nursery school in Brixton, a borough in London, England. I remember my mother getting me dressed and singing songs on the radio to make me feel less nervous. I remember me not wanting to go. At home, it was just me, my little sister and my mum, and I just didn't want to leave them. I remember the short walk from my house, past the corner shop and the butchers, and then over the zebra crossing and down the road that would take me to Ephraim Nursery School, the place where I'd spend the next few years. I remember every detail of that walk. I remember the Alsatian dog Charles that I had to pass on the route who barked at me every single day. I remember the cracks in the pavement outside the greengrocers, the weird pelican lights that stood near the zebra crossing. Just Google them. I remember arriving at school and meeting my teacher, Georgie, a beautiful, dark-skinned woman from Grenada. She smelt like cocoa butter, pink moisturising hair oil, cornmeal porridge and love. I didn't know at the time, but Georgie would turn out to be the only black teacher I would ever have. And I remember, as I tearfully kissed my mother goodbye, Georgie smiling at me, giving me a warm hug and telling me that everything would be okay. And as I stood in the school entrance watching the other kids playing like they'd known each other for years, I remember Georgie giving my hand a reassuring squeeze and I remember feeling safe. A feeling quickly replaced by boredom and a desire to leave which I promptly did by squeezing through the school gates and, uh, yeah, I walked home. Yeah, I was one of those kids. And in case you're wondering how come a little kid was able to make it all the way home by himself, look, it was the 80s, and anyone who saw me probably figured I was just going to the shops to buy cigarettes or something. Those first day at school feelings came flooding back to me when I came across an article about nine children. Three boys and five girls having their first day at school. They were older than the me in the story I just described. I went to school with my mother. They went to school accompanied by the National Guard. I was greeted by the beautiful Georgie. They were greeted by a baying crowd of hate-filled faces. No sounds of playing for them. No kisses goodbye at school gates. This was Little Rock, 1957, and the children were Ernest Green, Elizabeth Eckford, Jefferson Thomas, Terence Roberts, Carletta Walls, Minnie Jean Brown, Gloria Ray Karlmark, Thelma Mothershed, and Melba Patillo Beals. Known as the Little Rock Nine, they were the first 
African-American children to attend a desegregated school. During the summer of 1957, the nine students enrolled at Little Rock Central High, which up until then had been an all-white school. The fight to desegregate America and American schools had been waging for years, culminating in 1954 with Brown v. Board of Education, in which the Supreme Court declared that segregated schooling was unconstitutional. The case was one of the cornerstones of the civil rights movement and helped establish the precedent that separate but equal education and other services were not, in fact, equal at all. And they really weren't. Separate but equal was a legal doctrine in United States constitutional law and has become so ingrained in public psyche that I heard someone use the phrase only recently. In fact, it was this week. Under the doctrine, as long as the facilities provided to each race were equal, state and local governments could require that services, facilities, public accommodation, housing, medical care, education, employment and transportation could be segregated by race. Hence the name, separate but equal. Now, to some people, that might sound good in principle. You may even agree with it, but when you start to apply it to your own life, that philosophy falls apart pretty quick. Anyone who has siblings will understand exactly what I mean. Let's be real. I love my family to bits, but let my mum give anyone more food than me on Christmas Day and you will see protests and riot break out in the house. People have favourites, sorry sis. And more importantly, people want favouritism. We can't even distribute food at a family picnic evenly, let alone public funds. To illustrate my point, let's take a look at what separate but equal schooling looked like in 1930s America. The average annual expenditure per pupil between 1937 and 1938 in the United States was $99.70. Let's call it $100. The average spent per pupil on black children was $23. In states like Alabama, that figure for black students tumbled to $14.75. So that's $100 for white kids versus $14 for black. How equal does that sound? Again in Alabama, the average expenditure on grounds, building, maintenance and equipment for white children worked out to $2.85 per child. But the average amount spent on black children in the same state was, wait for it, 58 cents. I'll say it again, 58 cents. In 1935, sugar cost around 50 cents, meaning that black schools received a budget the equivalent of a packet of sugar per child for maintenance. Just in case you're thinking that things might have been better for the teachers, I've got some more numbers for you. In Alabama, white teachers received a yearly salary of $827. The black teachers, they received $393, nearly half that amount. The situation got so bad that in the late 1930s, the American Council on Education sent a team of investigators into the Deep South to conduct a survey of the schools in which black children were educated. 
this is an extract from their report. A typical Negro school is at Dine Hollow. It is in a dilapidated building, once whitewashed, standing in a rocky field unfit for cultivation. Dust-covered weeds spread a carpet all around except for an uneven bare area on one side that looks like a ball field. Behind the school is a small building with a broken, sagging door. As we approach, a nervous middle-aged woman comes to the door of the school. She greets us in a discouraged voice marked by a speech impediment. Escorted inside, we observe that the broken benches are crowded to three times their normal capacity. Only a few battered books are in sight and we look in vain for maps or charts. We learn that four grades are assembled here. The wary teacher agrees to permit us to remain while she proceeds with the instruction. She goes to the blackboard and writes an assignment for the first two grades to do while she conducts spelling and word drills for the third and fourth grades. This is the assignment. Write your name 10 times. Draw and cat and dog and rat and boot. That extract is from Growing Up in the Black Belt. Please, if you get a chance, Google it, check it out. Fascinating read. As I said, separate, but very far from equal. Anyway, back to our brave students. Warned by the Little Rock Board of Education not to attend the first day of school, the nine students arrived on the second day accompanied by a small group of ministers. If you Google Little Rock Nine, your search will give you an idea of what the students' first day of school was like. You'll see pictures of the nine. You'll see pictures of the hate mob that greeted them. But the image that will stick in your mind the most will be the image of a teenage girl walking alone in sunglasses while a tornado of hate swirled around her. That girl was Elizabeth Eckford. And this is her describing her first day of school. I'm Elizabeth Eckford. I am part of a group that became known as Little Rock Nine. Prior to the segregation of Central, there had been one high school for white, Central High School, one high school for blacks, Dunbar. I expected that there may be something more available to me at Central that was not available at Dunbar, that there might be more courses I could pursue, that there were more options available. I was not prepared for what actually happened. I was more concerned about what I would wear, whether we could finish my dress in time. What I was wearing, was that okay? Would it look good? The night before, when the governor went on television and announced that he had called out the Arkansas National Guard, I thought that he'd done this to ensure the protection of all the students. The governor she's speaking about is Governor Orville Fabus. He was a staunch defender of segregation and in defiance of the Supreme Court, called in the Arkansas National Guard to keep the nine teenagers out. Imagine being so reluctant to share knowledge that you defy the president and call in an army just to keep out 19 age students. 
We did not have a telephone. So inadvertently, we were not contacted to let us know that Daisy Bates of NACP had arranged for some ministers to accompany the students in a group. And so it was I that arrived alone. Elizabeth next begins to describe her journey. And you can start to hear the painful memories of that day surface in her voice as she realises that the guards were not there to protect her from the mob. They were there to protect the school from her. 270 trained soldiers protected the school that day. 270 trained killers defending the school from nine black students. On the morning of September 4th, my mother was doing what she usually did. My mother was making sure everybody's hair looked right and everybody had the lunch money and the things, their, their notebooks and things. And, and, um, but she did finally get quiet and we had family prayer. I remember my father walking back and forth. My father worked at night and normally he would have been asleep at that time. But he was awake and he was walking back and forth, chomping on a cigar that wasn't lit. I expected that I would go to school as before on city bus. So I walked a few blocks to the bus stop, got on the bus and uh, rode to within two blocks of the school. Got off the bus and I, I noticed along the street that there were many more cars than usual and I remember hearing the murmur of a crowd. But when I got to the corner where the school was, I was reassured seeing these soldiers circling the school grounds. And I saw students going to school. I saw the guards break ranks as students approached the sidewalk so that they could pass through to get to school. And I approached the guard at the corner as I had seen some other students do. And um, they closed ranks. So I thought, well, maybe I am not supposed to enter at this point. So I walked further down the line of guards to where there was another sidewalk. And I attempted to pass through there. But when I stepped up, they crossed rifles. And again, I said to myself, well, maybe I'm supposed to go down to where the main entrance is. So I walked toward the center of the street. And when I got to about the middle, and I approached the car, he directed me across the street into the crowd. It was only then that I realized that they were barring me, that I wouldn't go to school. As I stepped out into the street, the people who had been across the street started surging forward behind me. And so I headed in the opposite direction to where there was another bus stop. Safety to me meant getting to that bus stop. It seemed like I sat there for a long time before the bus came. In the meantime, people were screaming behind me what, what I would have described as a crowd before. To my ear, sounded like a mom. Richard! 
My thank goes out to Facing History for allowing me to use that last section of audio. Elizabeth was right. There'd be no school for her or any of them that day. The nine attempted to return on September 23rd, entering the school through a side door. When they were eventually discovered, the protesters became so violent they attacked everybody black as well as reporters covering the story. And so again, the students returned home. Just imagine having to face a hate mob and trained killers just to go to school, not once, but multiple times. Imagine at age 17, being at the center of a national debate when you should have been worrying about homework and what you were gonna wear the next day. The pressure must have been incredible, but there was no turning back. The whole world was watching. Despite his reluctance to use federal troops to enforce desegregation, President Eisenhower sent in the elite 101st Airborne Division called the Screaming Eagles to Little Rock and placed the Arkansas National Guard under federal command. And on the 25th of September, 1957, escorted in by the Screaming Eagles, Ernest Green, Elizabeth Eckford, Jefferson Thomas, Terence Roberts, Carletta Walls, Minnie Jean Brown, Gloria Ray Carmark, Thelma Mothershed and Melba Patillo Beals got to have their first day. The nine continued to face physical and verbal attacks from white students throughout their studies at Central High. They were spat upon, punched, kicked, hit with eggs and verbally abused. One of the students, Millie Jean Brown, fought back and was expelled. The remaining eight students, however, attended the school for the rest of the academic year. And at the end of the year, in 1958, Ernest Green became the first African-American to graduate from Little Rock Central High School. I should really end the story right there, but there's a painful twist. Governor Fabus, defeated in his attempts to enforce segregation directly, found another way to keep blacks away from public funds. Rather than repeat integration for another year, he simply shut down all the schools. Many school districts in the South followed Little Rock's example, either closing schools or implementing quote-unquote school choice programs that subsidise white students' attendance at private segregated academies not covered by the Supreme Court's decision. Little Rock Central High School did not reopen with a desegregated student body until 1960 and efforts to integrate schools and other public areas throughout the country continued throughout the 60s. So, I mean, this was more than 62 years ago. Ancient history, right? I said there was a twist. And a report from 2016 showed that school districts that predominantly served black and brown students received $23 billion less in funding than those serving mostly white school districts. 
and that's despite serving the same number of students. The legacy of separate but equal still exists to this day. The mobs outside the schools may have gone, but those with that mentality are now making policy decisions. Policy decisions that will affect the earning potential for entire generations. So, if you're a parent, guardian, auntie, uncle, I implore you to do your best to get involved with school activities as much as possible and fight for your kids while they're in school as hard as the Little Rock Nine fought to attend school. If you enjoyed this and want to learn some more, please check out my website, which you can find by searching blackhistorybuff.com. There you'll find blog pages and a blog accompanying this episode, alongside some research material that you can use to start developing lesson plans for children in your care. And while you're there, please consider supporting the show by making a donation on Patreon or Podfan. Again, you'll find links in the description and on my website. So people, please stay positive, stay wise, stay active, because movement is life. And remember, black history is world history. I'll speak to you all soon. Actually, something else I want to say. Remember at the beginning of this, I said that I didn't have a black teacher throughout my entire education. Well, I grew up hating school and the whole education system. I eventually left the lovely Georgie and ended up in a Roman Catholic school run by priests and nuns. Church every day, occasionally a kid would get beat up by a teacher and no black history was taught at all. For an undiagnosed dyslexic like me, this environment was hell. And whenever I hear, to this very day, whenever I hear someone say that school was the best days of their life, my first instinct is to give them a backhand to the face. I'm giving you this information because I want to share something with you, something important to me. I when I finally escaped education, went through a long journey of self-discovery. I became a DJ. I wound up working in massive retail companies up and down all of Britain. And on that journey, I realized that I had this ability to teach, coach and train. And somehow, ended up supporting students with learning disabilities in further education. Students who I might add went to universities such as Oxford and Cambridge. Now, I supported these students with no formal education to my name. And I'm really happy to share with you all, especially on this post, that I will finally be attending school to get my formal teaching qualification very soon and depending on when you're listening to this I may actually have finished and it feels like I've broken the educational curse that was on my life I'm not doing this because it makes me a better person or because I think getting that qualification is going to help me get more money I'm doing this to prove a point 
to myself and to my son that you can do anything that you apply your mind to. It doesn't require immense intelligence. It just requires determination, discipline, and focus of intention. Too many times I've seen people get talked out of following their dreams by people who have done nothing or give up on their dreams because they just haven't dreamed big enough because somehow they were fooled into thinking that it requires some immense talent that's just been dropped on them from the sky that they were just born with. Let me share something with you. I failed maths and English at school and somehow ended up tutoring students completing their PhDs. I remember sitting with one student, a doctor, thinking, I don't have a single qualification to my name. What the hell am I going to help a doctor to learn? But you know what? Somehow I helped. I'm dyslexic, severely dyslexic. Yes, I know if you've listened to the show, you've heard me banging on about it. But you know what? I've scripted nearly 20 episodes of this show. And somehow along the journey, even managed to end up running a writing room for someone else's blog so I say all of that just to say people never give up and if you have a dream I'm daring you right now I'm daring you right now to make that dream bigger make your dream as big as you can make it and then challenge yourself to make it even bigger than that now there's going to be two emotions that will rise up in you the second you start to dream bigger One will be fear. The other will be excitement at the possibility that you might be able to pull it off. The feeling you feed will determine the result of your dream. All right. I just wanted to share that with you all. Okay. All right. I'm done now. Until the next episode. All right. Take care. At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.